Psalm 96. Um, let's see, I think most of you met uh, JT and Hillary back here, the Nortons. Good to have you guys here tonight. Most, I think everybody else knows everybody else pretty much. We are working our way through the Psalms, trying to take one every uh, Wednesday night when we're not having uh, prayer night or something else. And we are now 96 Psalms into this study. It has been a helpful thing for me to force me to think of a psalm as a unit, as uh, covering the, trying to get a handle on the structure of what's going on here rather than just picking verses out. A lot of times in the psalms, you will recognize a verse because you've heard that verse, you've heard it quoted, uh, you perhaps sing it. We run into a lot of verses in these psalms that have been set to music or little choruses that we're familiar with. And yet, most of the time, we don't look at the overall content and context of the psalm. And that uh, has been a good exercise for me, and it will pay off dividends, especially uh, this evening, I trust. We're in Psalm 96. Let us read it, first of all, and then we will discuss it. Psalm 96, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless His name, show forth His salvation from day to day, declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him, strength and beauty or in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the peoples, give unto the Lord glory and strength, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Uh, one thing we notice right off the bat is that this begins much like the beginning of Psalm 95 that we looked at, well, it's a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, but notice the similarity. Uh, notice Psalm 95 begins with a similar expression, O come and let us sing unto the Lord. Uh, look at Psalm uh, 96, verse 1, the one we just read, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Uh, look at Psalm 98, verse 1, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Notice that we have a very similar theme in uh, this, this psalm set sort of in the middle of a set of psalms that all are expressing the basic, same basic idea. Now notice the expression down there in Psalm 96 verse 1, sing unto the Lord a new song. Well, we tried to sing a new song tonight, didn't do too hot at it, but uh, we, uh, we get the idea of a new song. Well, that's a song I had never heard before. Uh, it's a new thing that's playing on the radio, uh, but I would try to plant an idea in your mind tonight that what the Bible is referring to when it speaks of a new song is a song that is designed for a new situation. The New Testament, the New Covenant situation. If you think about the New Covenant, the, what we call the New Testament, how many new things can you name? A new what? Earth? Birth. My, my ears are still plugged from flying, I think. A new birth? A new earth. I've already given you, yeah, I'm giving it away here. New heavens, new earth. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a... New creation, new creature, a new name written uh, in a stone. 
a new heart, a new spirit will I put within them. New commandment I give unto you. What's the new thing coming down from heaven to earth? The new Jerusalem. You just think about how often that expression is used, especially in the book of Revelation. They sang a new song before the throne of God. It is the song of redemption, the song of being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And notice that this is that new thing. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that that is precisely what is in view here for a number of reasons, and we'll get to some of those a little later, that when we're saying here to sing a new song, we're just not talking about any old new song, but we're talking about a song that is designed specifically for a new situation that is coming upon the scene. And namely, this is an Old Testament man looking at the new covenant age that is coming and saying, let's sing a new song, a new song that fits that particular age. So first of all, notice that word new. We're going to see it again, of course, over in Psalm 98, verse 1. It's repeated quite often in this series of psalms. The second thing I'd have you notice is if you sort of look and glance at this psalm, sometimes when you study the Word of God, especially looking at a psalm, uh, start looking for words repeating or synonyms of words repeating. And uh, one thing that jumps out at me is the various ways the people that we call Gentiles are described in this psalm. Uh, follow with me. In verse 96, who's to sing this new song? Well, it's all the earth. Uh, notice in verse 3, declare his glory among the heathen. There's another synonym for the Gentiles. His wonders among all peoples. There's another synonym for the Gentiles. Uh, verse 5, the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Down in verse 7, given to the Lord, O ye kindreds of the peoples, the family of the nations. I think the NIV translates it that way, which is, which is interesting because if you think of Israel, all Israel and its neighbors were all the descendants of one family, the family of Abraham. You had Israel, which was Jacob's other name, his new name, and they are the children of Israel. Of course, Edom, the Edomites down to their south, if we were standing in downtown Jerusalem, Edom would be down here about Grenada. The Edomites, of course, were the descendants of Edom, who was another name of Esau. Jacob's twin brother. Then across the river, the Jordan River, to the east, you have the Ammonites and the Moabites who were the descendants of Lot. So notice that all of these peoples that are gathered around there, they're all from one family. They're all kissing cousins, I guess we would say, uh, related in one way or the other. And so normally it's how this speaks then of the families of the peoples. Uh, just notice how often that expression shows up here, that this is a psalm that speaks of a song that is to be directed at Gentile nations, the heathen, the peoples, the family of nations. In other words, this is not something directed to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is supposed to be singing the song. They're singing the song to the Gentile nations. And then about midway in... Uh, Starting in verse 7, we see what I've chosen to call the echo of the Gentiles. In other words, are you familiar with choir music where there is a, a, a declaration and a response? It's sometimes called in, in composing question and answer. Uh, in orchestral music, you may have the strings do this and then the horns answer. It's, it's back and forth, back and forth. And oftentimes in choir music, you do that. You sing back and forth. Uh, Bill Sasser over here in Franklin, Tennessee, uh, he and his wife, Lynn, sing a song that he was telling me the story of it, that it goes back to the days of the Civil War. And it's like, oh, sinner, will you meet me? Will you meet me over there? That's it's just an old, old song. And he said that there are accounts of the Confederate and Union armies singing verses of that song back and forth across the battlefield to each other. In other words, one sings and then the other answers. Well, that's a similar thing that's what's going on here. You'll notice starting in verse 7, 
now the exhortation is not to sing this song to the Gentiles, it's that the Gentiles sing it back. Uh, again, the NIV, instead of using the word give in verse 7 and 8, uses the term ascribe. And it's a, an exhortation to the Gentiles to ascribe back to God what they have just had sung to them. Uh, let me give an example. Look at verse 6. Here's the end of the song to the Gentiles. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty or glory are in His sanctuary. Then in verse 7, Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the peoples, give unto the Lord glory and strength. The very thing that you have ascribed to God in the previous verse, now you're exhorting the Gentiles to ascribe that to God, to sing it back to God. So notice how you got this little back and forth ditty going on. You're proclaiming to the Gentiles the glory of God, the supremacy of God, that there's no other God like Him. In fact, there's a little interesting thing going on here in verse 5. It says, for all the gods of the nations are idols. The word in Hebrew for idol is a word that literally means nothing. The gods of the heathen are nothings. They don't exist. And notice that that means that these idol gods are made by man's hands. And they're really nothing. On the other hand, notice the flip side in verse 5. The gods of the nations are idols, nothings, but the Lord made the heavens. In other words, the idol has to be made. Whereas the true God is the one who makes. He's the maker. Those idols have to be formed in fashion. In fact, we have this little parody in Jeremiah, about a man that goes out into the forest, cuts down a tree. Out of one half of it, he chops up firewood, cooks his meal over it. The other half, he carves it into an idol and worships it. Anybody here see a problem? <laughs> Isn't that a little bit ridiculous? That out of the same tree that you've just cooked your meal on, you've now stood it up and bowed down to it. How foolish can you be? The idols are merely that which has been made and fashioned by man's hand, the God that we proclaim is the maker of the heavens and the earth. He's not made. And so uh, there's several of those little things going on. Um, then at the end of the psalm, you'll notice that it is not only the Gentiles that are being called upon to echo these things back and give God glory, but notice in verse 11 you see the heavens rejoicing, the earth glad, the sea roaring, the fullness thereof, the field being joyful, the trees of the forest. Notice that all nature is called upon to join this great song of ascribing glory and strength and honor to God. Um, I'm thinking of the sound of the sea. We have in certain places in Scripture that uh, the sound of many waters. The sound of many waters is like a huge crowd and the same thing happens, of course, when the wind blows through the trees of the forest. There's, there's a roar. There's a sense in which it's almost as if there is a, the, these things are alive and they are joining in the song, not only of the Gentiles, but creation itself joining in this song. Now, that's the basic idea of the song. And normally I'd go verse by verse, pick this thing to pieces, but trust me, we're in a series of psalms that all sound just about alike. And so we're going to get to these themes later on. What intrigues me, fascinates... Anybody here like a mystery? What intrigues me about this psalm is its setting. You'll notice there is no inscription to this psalm. Now, we've had a number of psalms back earlier that says, well, this was written when so-and-so was doing, you know, most of the time, David on the run from Saul. I've told you before, the inscriptions are not inspired Scripture. They're somebody's guess, probably an old guess. Sometimes they seem to be right. Sometimes they seem to be wrong. But you'll notice that this psalm has nothing to cue us as to when it was written, who wrote it, or the circumstances surrounding it. And yet, let me give you a little surprise here. We have more information about the setting of this psalm than any other psalm we have studied so far. Let me give you a little background information, and then we'll sort of plow, plow into this. 
Y'all remember Eli, Samuel? Samuel was living with Eli. You remember he thought Eli was calling him in the middle of the night, got up, ran in there, and Eli finally says, you listen to the Lord. Okay, you know the setting. Eli is the priest. Samuel has gone up to live with him at Shiloh. And the priest has two worthless sons. Uh, what's their names? Phinehas and Hophni and... The other name escapes me. Phinehas and Hophni. And uh, they're about as worthless as kids can be. And uh, they're going into battle against the Philistines. And they get whipped the first day. And so they light upon this bright idea, let's go fetch the Ark of the Covenant. Let's bring it into the camp. That's their language. In fact, the Philistines have more respect for God than they do because the Philistines said, uh-oh, now they're bringing God into their midst. And the Israelites said, let's just go get it. So they bring the ark out as if it's going to be a good luck charm. And the next day they go into battle and you know the story of the Philistines slaughter the Israelite army. They kill the two sons of Eli. They steal, they capture the ark of the covenant. And you may recall that one of the daughters-in-laws of Eli is having a baby at that moment, and she dies in childbirth, and they give the baby a name, Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. It's a fitting name. I don't, outside of Ichabod Crane, I've never known another person named Ichabod. But anyway. So it's a terrible day for Israel. Eli falls over and breaks his neck and he dies. So just in one fell swoop, judgment falls upon the land of Israel. And the Philistines have finally captured the Ark of the Covenant. Oh man, they're proud. They got a prize here. They take it down to their temple to Dagon, who is the god they worship. And they set that thing in Dagon's temple. And the next day they get up and old Dagon has fallen over on his face. So they prop him back up. The next day he's falling over his face and his head's broken off. This isn't working out. And plus, they're being smitten by, well, what the Scriptures call hemorrhoids, which is a fancy word for hemorrhoids or tumors. There's this plague breaking out. And so there where they in Gath, where they have taken the ark uh, to the temple of Dagon, they decided we're going to send this thing down the road to the next Philistine city. But the plague just follows the ark down there. They're going to send it on to the next city. And they said, don't bring that thing here. And they wind up, you remember what they wind up doing with it? They set it on an ark cart and sent it back to Israel. Here they fought a battle to capture the thing in the first place, and now they just give it back to them because they don't know what to do. Well, it uh, the ox takes it to the border region between Israel and the Philistine land. Men of Beth Shemesh are out uh, thrashing wheat, and they see the ox bringing this cart up the road with the Ark of the Covenant in it. They get all excited, and somebody has the bright idea, let's open that thing up and look inside. Bad idea. I mean, you know that from watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, don't you? I mean, you don't have to know the Bible that that's a bad idea. But anyway, the thousands of them are slain uh, for looking inside the Ark. So... They sent it on up the road to another fellow. He's a Levite by the name of Abinadab. And he becomes sort of the custodian of the Ark of the Covenant for a long, long time. We have the idea that once Moses gave the law and they got this ceremonial law thing going that it just ran like clockwork. What you are shocked, I hope, to discover is that it didn't work out quite like that. That for about 20 years during Samuel's time, that ark stays at this man's house. Now keep in mind, there's a tabernacle, the tent where the priests are offering sacrifices that doesn't have an ark in it. The priests are still there at the tabernacle. It's at Shiloh for a while. It tends to move around to various locations. But there's no ark inside it. So they're doing this worship, offering these sacrifices to an arkless tabernacle. The ark is over here at this guy, Abinadab's house. They're on the borderland between Israel and the Philistine areas. Okay. All through Samuel's tenure, 20 years, 
all through Saul's tenure, 40 years, till the time of David. That's 60 years, and David reigned in Hebron for seven years before he became king in Jerusalem. So let's say another 10 years has gone by. This is 70 years now. And David has a desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant, to go fetch it. Apparently nobody's even thought about that. Isn't that strange? I mean, is this not weird stuff? Nobody even thought about doing this. So he sends his guys down to Abinadab's house, and they get a cart. You know the story, don't you? The ox cart. They set the Ark on the ox cart, and Abinadab has these two boys. One of them's name's Uzzah. And as the ox cart is heading towards Jerusalem, the ox stumbles. And Uzzah, afraid that the ark's going to fall over out of the ox cart, reaches up to steady it. And what happens? He's struck dead. Well, that seemed to be a good idea at the time. I've had a lot of those lately. Seemed to be good ideas at the time. Just, uh, wait a minute, something's not right. So instead of bringing the ark on, they took it aside into another Levite's home. His name is Obed-Edom. They leave it there for three months, and the report comes to David that God is fantastically blessing this man, Obed-Edom, because of the ark. And so David does, David's all upset at God. I mean, after all, I mean, the guy was just trying to help you out, trying to keep the ark from falling over on the road, and you struck him dead. He's sort of been out of shape with God till he begins to do some study and he realizes that he has violated the law of Moses by the way he's transporting the ark. You can go over to 1 Chronicles and see that he learned that the way you're supposed to transport the ark isn't in an ox cart, but it is up on poles carried by the priests. We know that from the time of Moses. So this time, they now bring the ark to David But this time, it is the priest carrying it on poles. You remember the ark was a box that had rings in the corners, and you could run a pole through there, and the priest then would carry it up on their shoulders. They would take seven steps, stop, and have a sacrifice. Seven more steps, stop, and have a sacrifice. And some of you may remember that when the ark came into Jerusalem, that David stripped down to his long johns and danced in front of the ark as they are bringing it into Jerusalem to a tent that David pitched for it. Now there's the mystery. The tabernacle is eight miles north of Jerusalem at a place called Gibeon. You remember the Gibeonites that tricked Joshua and the Israelites into signing a treaty with them back there when they first came into the land? Well, this is their hometown. The ark, the, the tabernacle of Moses is at Gibeon. The priests are up there offering sacrifices. David, instead of bringing the ark back to the tabernacle, brings it to Jerusalem and sets up a tent for it. Do you ever realize that? You've got a time, you've got about 30 years that there's two tabernacles. Do you ever realize that? There's one up at Gibeon where they're offering the sacrifices the Moses commanded. And there's another one in downtown Jerusalem where David lives. In fact, do you remember the Davidic promise? 2 Samuel 7, we talked about... Did we talk about that? I've talked about that somewhere. Okay. 2 Samuel 7, the promise that God made to David that a man of his seed would sit on his throne forever and ever. And immediately after David gets that promise, we read that he went in and sat before the Lord. Let that sink in. He went in where? And sat before the Lord. Wasn't up at the tabernacle up there at Gibeon. They didn't have anywhere to sit down. You couldn't even go in there. The priests were the only ones that could go. Undoubtedly, it speaks of the fact that David went into this tent he had erected there in Jerusalem where they had put the ark. He goes in and he sets before God and he's just absolutely blown away at God's mercy towards him. You see the strange thing going on here? Now I realize I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you. You can go back and check me out, but this is what's going on. For the next 30 years, 
during the reign of David, that's where the ark stays, in that tent in Jerusalem. Tabernacle, the one Moses said build, eight miles away. It will not be till Solomon's day. When Solomon builds the temple, you will see that he goes to Gibeon and he brings the furniture. You remember this table of showbread, the menorah, that candlestick? He brings that from Gibeon to the temple. Then he goes into this tent there in Jerusalem and brings the ark. It will not be till Solomon builds the temple that everything is reunited under one roof again. That means that for a hundred years, the ark has been somewhere else besides in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. I mean, y'all not, I mean, I, inquiring minds want to know, I mean, what in the world is this all about? What in the world is going on? You'd think, wait a minute. I thought they weren't supposed to do stuff like this. And yet David is doing it and David's being blessed because of it. I want you to go to a place where we see the beginning of of this situation. And I think the, the guys are going to put a couple of these verses up here. First of all, First Chronicles 16. What's the first one, Macy? First Chronicles 16, 7. In 1 Chronicles 16, we see what happens as worship begins in Jerusalem. Now remember, this is not worship that Moses prescribed. This is Moses, this is other, this is alternative worship. I don't know what you'd call it. This is doing things in a completely different way. And one of the things that you notice is on this day, David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph, his brethren. David wrote a psalm, a new psalm, you see, for this occasion. And Asaph was the choir leader. He's the Kenny Porter of the day. He's over the Levites who are the singers. Now, when did singing become associated with the worship of God? I mean, we sing all the time. Every Sunday we get together, we sing hymns. We read about Jesus and His disciples singing. Have you ever thought about that? Where do you find music associated with the worship of God in a regular way? You won't find it in Moses. You won't find it in the law. You'll find the song of Moses and Deborah's song, which are victor songs, you know, when they drown the Egyptians in the Red Sea. But you never find music associated with the worship of God till right here. First Chronicles 16. From this point on, music will become a regular feature of the way you worship God. These choirs of the Levites, led by Asaph and his brethren, we talked about He-Man, you remember old Haman, the, the Israelites would say, but Ethan, his brother, they were all leaders of these singers. From this time on, music is regularly connected with the worship of God. You can go to 1 Chronicles 16 and you can read how you have not only musicians, singers, but you have people playing timbrels. You have somebody playing horns. You've got, in other words, you've got more than just voices. You've got instrumental music now associated with the worship of God. Now notice, this verse is telling us that David has penned a brand new psalm for these guys to sing as they inaugurate this new worship that's going on here at this tent that David pitched, not the Moses, not Moses' tabernacle. This is David's tabernacle. Okay? Well, would you like to know? There's actually, it is a combination of three psalms. A piece of one psalm, a piece of another, and the entire Psalm 96. Macy, if you would, put the next section up here. 1 Chronicles 16, starting in verse 23 through 33. This is from that section. Notice how it compares to Psalm 96 that you've just read here. In other words, we know who wrote it. David wrote it. We know when he wrote it. 
He wrote it for the inauguration of this new way of worship there in Jerusalem. And we know that he gave it to Asaph in order for them to sing it that day. So we know more about this psalm, what's the situation that prompted it, than any other psalm. It is this new way of worship. Now you begin to want to see why he said, let's sing a new song. Because we got a new thing going on in Jerusalem. The old psalm, if you want to call it that, is up there at Gibeon. There's a new situation happening in Jerusalem. There's a new way of worshiping God, a new approach to God that is going on now. You'll see, and... Uh, Macy, go ahead and put the next one up there that I picked out. I'm not sure if I'm with you. Uh, this is the passage. Notice this is one chapter earlier where David is saying the reason that God's wrath broke out upon Uzzah, struck him dead, was because we did it not after due order. We weren't carrying the ark like God commanded us to. Now, this is the great mystery. On the one hand, carrying the ark in an ox cart got you in trouble. You had to do it the way the law said to do it, carry it on your shoulders. On the other hand, where they're taking the ark isn't to where the law said put it, it's to this new tent. Okay? Next next one, mate. Notice, so they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before God. Is this strange or what? Because burnt offerings and peace offerings are supposed to be offered up there at the tabernacle. The tabernacle of Moses. At the burnt altar. That big brass altar out in the courtyard where the tabernacle is pitched. Here we see David pitching a tent. And we're now offering sacrifices here. Go ahead and put the next one up. The description in 1 Chronicles 16 is he left about half the Levites in Jerusalem to conduct worship there at the tent he pitched. The other half, namely Zadok the priest and his brethren the priest before the tabernacle of the Lord that was at the high place that was in Gabeon. In other words, he's now divided the priesthood. He sends the priests up to Gabeon to minister there before an arkless tent. And he keeps the Levites, most of the Levites, in Jerusalem to worship there where the Ark of the Covenant is. Alright, next one. What went on at this tent in Jerusalem? Three things are mentioned. This is David. He appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the Lark, minister before the Ark of the Lord. Here's the three things that they did: to record, to thank, and to praise the Lord. Now that word "record" is a word that describes somebody who brings things to remembrance. He's a reminder. He is somebody who reminds you of what God has done for you. That then leads to the next thing, to thank the Lord and then to praise the Lord. In other words, notice the tone surrounding this worship. Now, let's contrast this to the worship that went on in the tabernacle. Um, For instance, how close could you approach God in the tabernacle of Moses? Well, if you weren't a priest, you couldn't get inside the room. You couldn't even get inside the tent. And if you weren't the high priest, you couldn't get in the Holy of Holies. And the high priest could only go there one time a year on one day. And he better be minding his P's and Q's when he goes or he's going to get struck dead. Does that sound like a recipe for rejoicing and praise or a a recipe for fear, (laughs) trembling? Uh, There is a sort of an urban legend that they tied a rope to the high priest. I can't find any source for this, but uh, that if they got struck dead, they could drag him out because nobody could go get him. Uh, that may just be an urban legend. But but the point is, it's like Chuck Yeager said, there's old test pilots and bold test pilots. There are no old, bold test pilots. Well, there are old high priests and bold high priests. There were no old, bold high priests. 
So notice the difference in the tone of worship here at Gibeon. It is the way it is prescribed. It is by the letter of the law. Here in Jerusalem at this tabernacle, it is joy, it's music, it's praise, it's thanks. Does that sound like the new situation to you? Isn't that the way our New Testament worship is to be? In other words, you can't hardly find a better description of New Testament worship than that verse right there, which is what they're doing at the tabernacle, the tent that David pitched in Jerusalem. All right, Macy, what's next? I've given her a whole list of these things. Uh, that's that's the whole account of the whole shebang there. Um, they left the ark there in Jerusalem, and the guys there ministered, and the rest of them, the high priest, went up to Gibeon. Okay? Go ahead. Next one. Now let's shift a thousand years forward. Fast forward a thousand years. Jesus has lived, died on a cross, buried in a tomb, raised from the dead, ascends to the throne, and the Spirit is poured out on His church. The great missionary mission is now taking place. You have the apostles Peter and John that are ministering to the circumcision. You have Paul, the former Saul of Tarsus, who is a minister to the uncircumcision, the Gentiles. There are Gentile converts being won out in Asia Minor and in the Gentile world. There are Gentile churches being formed. We know that because of the letters that Paul is writing them. But there becomes a great controversy among the Jews in Jerusalem, especially those who were the Judaizers, we call them, do we require Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved? To be circumcised and keep the law. Now, you know what I'm talking about. They have this big powwow in Acts 15 in Jerusalem. They have this big powwow to decide that question. It's basically this. They had always allowed Gentiles to proselyte to the Jewish faith. What the Judaizers are saying, we don't mind Gentiles joining us as long as they become Jews. They can be part of the church. We'll admit that they're just as justified as we are. They're just as saved as we are if they'll embrace Judaism, become a Jew, and live by the law of Moses. But you have others there, Peter, saying, boys... Hold on. I was up there at this Gentile's house, Cornelius the Centurion, there at Caesarea. And I didn't even get to the invitation song, preaching to them the gospel, when the Holy Spirit fell on them. And God gave them the same gift He gave us. He put no difference between them and us. Now let that sink in. These Judaizers are saying, okay, we'll let them be in the church if they'll become like us, circumcised, Torah-keeping, Mosaic law-keeping Jews. Peter's saying, that ain't the way it worked at Caesarea. Paul then gets up and says, let me give you my testimony. And he tells about the Gentiles in large numbers that are being converted out there in Asia Minor, what we would call today Turkey, in places like Ephesus, and then on over into Greece. So you get, you get the picture. You've got Peter and Paul saying, fellas, let's look here at what God is doing. And finally, it is James. And this is where this text comes from. James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, who is pastor, we would say, of the Jerusalem church, more or less sums up the matter in these words. He says, after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that's Simon Peter, has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for His name. And he's talking about what Peter just told them that happened in Caesarea. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, and he's quoting here from Hosea in the Old Testament, After this I will return and will build again 
the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things, known unto God are all, the, all his works from the beginning of the world. What James is saying is, boys, God has already prophesied of this situation back in Hosea. Now, this quote comes out of Hosea 11. It's, you, you go back and read it from the Masoretic text. This is being quoted from the Greek Septuagint version. What this text is saying is that there's going to be two groups. There's going to be the, uh, the residue of men, that is the remnant of Israel that are going to seek the Lord, and then all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called. In other words, you've got the remnant of Israel being joined by this group of Gentiles who believe. And what James is saying, God spoke about this. He didn't say these Gentiles had to become Jews. He's saying he's going to bring the two groups together. As Paul will use the terminology, he's going to break down that middle wall of partition between us. But the part I want you to focus on is that expression, he will build again the tabernacle of David. Most of the commentators understand that to mean the house of David. That is, the dynasty of David, the kingly line of David, and certainly God did reestablish that in, in Jesus Christ. But the term, the tabernacle of David, means literally the tent of David. There's only one tent that that could possibly be talking about. It's that tent that David established in downtown Jerusalem and set this tabernacle in and then wrote this psalm, Psalm 96, for the Levites to sing at the inauguration of that worship. And if that then sinks in, what this prophecy... There's a lot of Old Testament scriptures James could have quoted if his only purpose was to say that in this kingdom there's going to be saved Jews and saved Gentiles. I mean, I can think of... Half a dozen right out of Isaiah. But this prophecy is different. It's not just talking about the fact that there's going to be believing Jews and believing Gentiles brought together. It's saying they're going to worship in the tabernacle of David. What's the significance of that? If we would expect Gentiles to have to become Jews, we'd say they can come worship at the temple or the tabernacle of Moses. But that this is referring to that strange situation that is taking place in David's day where you've got a different kind of worship going on. A worship of thanksgiving, praise, remembering the works of God for us, joy, music, both vocal and instrumental, by the way, going on, and basically saying this is what God has prophesied for this New Testament age. It's not going to look like the tabernacle of Moses. It's going to look like the tabernacle of David. All right, chew on those things a little bit. I realize I've hit you with a lot of stuff. i got one other thing before I quit. One thing. It's a textual thing. But it's a fascinating textual thing. You still got, well, I've, I've long since lost Psalm 96. Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. You'll see that phrase sprinkled throughout these psalms. Tell the heathen the Lord reigneth. Anybody know who Justin Martyr is? He was a actually a philosopher that lived in Asia Minor in the mid-2nd century. He uh, wrote a letter to the Caesar who was alive at that time, Antoninus, Antonicus Pius, who was Caesar right in the middle part of that century. And he, he is writing to Caesar to get him basically to lighten up on the Christians. And he is trying to present the Christian faith to him. And he tells Antinicus that Antonicus, can't say his name right, he tells him that there were prophecies 
of Jesus in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled. And he quotes a number of Old Testament prophecies that you and I would be very familiar with. That, yeah, we, we all acknowledge these things are being fulfilled in, in the ministry of Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 96, verse 10. Anybody see a Messianic prophecy here? Say unto the heathen, the Lord reigneth. Because the way Justin Martyr quotes it is like this. He quotes this verse, Say unto the heathen, The Lord reigneth from the tree. In another one of his works, he is in a dialogue with this man Trypho the Jew. And Justin takes Trypho to task for the fact that Justin says that the Jews intentionally altered their Scriptures so that it wouldn't so blatantly speak of Jesus as the Messiah. And one of the places he accuses them of doing that is right here in Psalm 96, verse 10. Justin again quotes it the way he had it in his Bible. He's reading a Greek Septuagint version of the Bible. It says, The Lord reigneth from the tree." Anybody see a messianic prophecy there? They, Peter preaching in Acts 5 says, Your leaders, they took the Son of God, the Christ, and they nailed Him to a tree. By the way, the word tree in Greek is the word xylon. It doesn't mean a tree like we've got a tree out here with leaves and branches. It's simply a generic word for wood. It could be timber, a post, a cross. You put him on a xylon. Peter preaching to Cornelius' household. The leaders of the Jews, they put him on a tree, a xylon. Paul preaching in Antioch of Pisidia. Those rulers in Jerusalem, they put him on a tree, a xylon. And here in Psalm 96, the Lord reigns from the xylon. What was the placard they put up? over Jesus' head. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Irony, isn't it? Now, I don't know. I can't say for certain. We, we, we know that this translation, that the Lord reigns from the tree, made its way over into the Vulgate the Latin Vulgate that Jerome translated for the Latin side of the Roman Empire, it's there. It's in the Coptic version. That's the one they used in Ethiopia and Egypt. It's not found in the Masoretic text. It's not found in our Septuagint version today. I don't have a clue if it's the correct reading. I know Justin Martyr thought it was. It was in his Bible. And what an ironious... Irony that this would be a messianic prophecy found right in the middle of this psalm being pinned to speak of messianic worship. This new song. We have in the book of Revelation the redeemed gathered around the throne singing a new song. Thou art worthy because you've redeemed us out of every kindred, people, and nation. You've redeemed us by your blood. It's the song of redemption that is that new song. I was preaching in California several years ago, and I was just sort of cruising along, made a statement that the song that the angels are singing in heaven is not worthy am I, but worthy is the Lamb. I thought that's pretty good myself. <laughs> After the service, a guy came up to me and he says, do you realize you made a mistake? I said, oh, no, uh, what, what did I say? I, not unusual. And he said, uh, you said that the angels sing in heaven. He says, do you realize that the Bible never, ever speaks of angels singing? 
Well, I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, doesn't it say over there at the birth of, you know, when the angels appeared to the shepherds and suddenly there was with the heavenly man there were a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the high. I said, I never had thought about that. So I don't know if angels sing or not. Maybe singing is something reserved for humans, for us. I do know this, that that new song that they sing before the throne of God is not sung by angels. It's sung by redeemed humanity. Those who have been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. They're the only ones that can sing it. They're the only ones that it applies to. The angels never had a Savior die on a cross for them. That's our prerogative. That's what has happened to us. That's the song. That's the music of the New Testament. That's the joy and the praise and the thanksgiving that thrills our soul. All right. We'll come back. Same song, second verse, next time. Psalm 97, very similar, as you will see. All right. I've given you an awful lot of stuff to chew on tonight. I would have you, if you've never heard about this tent of David in Jerusalem, I'd I'd, uh, like to challenge you to give that some study and uh, tell me what you think. It's a fascinating thing. It is an anomaly. An anomaly is something outside the box. It's something strange. Um, My uncle was an atmospheric physicist out at White Sands, and he was decrying the problem of physicists using statistics to, you know, we have these signals come in and usually form a bell curve, and you take the middle of the bell curve, that's what it's telling. And he said the problem with that is that sometimes you miss very interesting things by throwing out, he said if we get a piece of data that's just completely off the chart, we just toss it out and say it's noise. And you stand a chance of missing something very, very interesting. If we landed, if we were living on Mars and we landed a rover on Earth, we just landed Curiosity on Mars. Let's suppose we lived on Mars and we landed Curiosity on Earth. And let's say that Curiosity measured wind speed. And so every day you're watching the charts and you're saying, okay, today the wind speed on Earth is 10 miles an hour. Next day, 5 miles an hour. Next day, 20 miles an hour. So forth. And day after day, year after year, till one day you look up and you're registering 250 miles an hour, there's got to be something wrong with the instrument. That's just noise. And you would have tossed out the data that would have given you insight into the probably the most interesting thing when it comes to wind speed is that that thing just got hit by a tornado. You'd completely miss it. And so it is that reading through the Word of God sometimes we stumble on these weird things that are just outside the box. But they're there, and I would just shrug my shoulders and go on were it not for the fact that here James, a thousand years later, quotes Hosea about the tabernacle of David. Something's going on there. All right? Let's pray.